Uh, I just wanted to read a few lines, the opening, or sorry, the third verse of that hymn, because I think it sets us up for where we want to go with this series. Um, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I'll boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Uh, We're starting a a new series of studies today, as Billy's already said. Uh, We're calling it Cross Talk, uh, because we're going to be looking together at the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm going to try and understand more of this, this strange idea that God gave up his son to die a gruesome and a painful death. We're going to try and understand more what that means and why it was necessary. As we look at the cross, we're going to learn more about ourselves and about God. And this morning, as we kick off that series, I'm going to look at uh, the wisdom of the cross or the, the foolishness of the cross. Uh, Paul talks about it in both terms in that passage in 1 Corinthians. Next Sunday, I'm going to look at how the cross uh, deals with evil. We're going to keep going with this series. Um, we're not just going to look at the cross, but as, as Billy uh, pointed out, we're going to look through the cross. That is, we're going to say, what if the cross was like a lens through which you look at the whole of life? What does it mean if, if we have a God who, who died for us on a cross? What does that have to tell us about issues like power, uh, suffering, ambition, failure, reconciliation, and life itself. This eight-part series is going to be taught by a variety of us, dealing with a variety of passages from Scripture, but the theme and the focus will always be broadly the same. It's the the cross of Jesus Christ. So this morning I'm going to start with this um, idea of the, the foolishness of the cross. Let me just pray that we'll know God's help. Father God, we often come to you and we pray for wisdom and for understanding. Today, we pray for a special kind of wisdom and understanding, one that's different from the the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that we naturally find in our hearts. To understand your cross is a unique kind of wisdom that we don't naturally have. So Lord, come and speak to us this morning. Help us to see it more clearly than ever before. Amen. Before we come to the the passage that we've just read, um, I want to take a moment with you looking at another Bible passage. So Mark chapter 14, if you want to flick it up, page 1021. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And this, uh, at this point in his gospel, Mark is showing us a a huge confrontation, Jesus with the authorities, uh, the Jewish authorities of the time. And the way Mark tells the story, it it sort of heightens the, the sense of tension and conflict. So he tells us, verse 43, that Jesus is standing before the high priest, all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law. In fact, verse 55, that he stood before the whole Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the ruling Jewish council. It meets in the temple in Jerusalem. They're there to sort out um, any problems 
that arise in the Jewish world resolve any disputes about the interpretation of Jewish law, how to live as God's people. So if you think of sort of a a blend between uh, a collection of bishops on the one hand and a supreme court on the other, it's when you bring all, all religious authority, all legal and political authority, when you put it all together in one place, you have the Sanhedrin. They've gathered because they've got a problem. And the problem has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And their question is, what are they going to do with him? And in this passage, you can see them trying to reason with him, trying to to discuss with him. They find him difficult to understand. They just don't get him. Matthew's version of the story, don't, don't worry about flicking it up. Jesus just doesn't say anything. They question him and he doesn't reply. Whenever he finally does speak, they ask him a, a direct question. Are you the Messiah? And he gives a, a really weird, mysterious answer. He says, so you say. In Mark's gospel here, we see that his answer to that question is much, much bolder more full-blown. He says, I am the Messiah, and you'll see me at the, the, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. Either way, whether we're with Mark or with Matthew on this, Jesus isn't given the answers I intuitively would expect. Jesus is on trial before these guys. He's in trouble that he knows they have the power to execute him. So surely, he ought to be given the answers to get them off the hook. The answers that appease them, give them what they want. But instead, we have this country rabbi before the whole of the religious, political, legal hierarchy of his country telling them, I'm going to be sitting beside God very soon. They don't get it. They think he's crazy, or at worst that he's blasphemous, that he's purposefully trying to to speak bad things about God. So whenever Jesus faces the wise, they can't make any sense of him. We're thinking today about the cross and about wisdom. The cross and foolishness. I recently went to a conference where Neil Hudson from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity was speaking. Um, he, sorry, the London Institute, they're the guys, guys behind Fruitfulness on the Frontlines, which, and Frontlines stuff, uh, they've been a great help to us in our congregation as we have thought about our life together. Neil was talking uh, on a theme, he was talking about preaching for the frontline, helping ministers, guys like me, to teach better Uh, for uh, people who have everyday lives, Monday to Saturday, on their front lines. He was trying to explain how in a post-Christian Britain, Christians are regarded as weird, and their message is increasingly regarded as weird. At one point in his address, he told us a wee story. He talked about his neighbor, the wee boy next door, who came over to him one time, and he said, do you want to know what my mom and dad say about you? 
Have you ever been asked that? It's a great question, isn't it? And he said, yeah, tell me. And, they, and, and the wee boy said, they call you the Flanders family. For those of you who aren't up on The Simpsons, uh, the Flanders family are the archetypal, slightly ridiculous fundamentalist Christians of Springfield. But the point Neil Hudson was making, if you live for Jesus Christ in any kind of a visible way in modern-day Britain, you start to look quite weird. You start to be somewhat like Ned Flanders and his family. Folks, it's not just as people watch our lives that they think we're weird. It's also as they listen to our message that it sounds increasingly weird. The further British culture moves from its Christian historical heritage. As Neil was teaching us about teaching, he said that in our evangelism and in our preaching, we should get used to saying something like this. This is going to sound crazy, but... He said we need to start introducing some of our conversations about Jesus, not expecting people to say, yeah, that makes sense, but to say, this is going to sound a bit crazy, but here's how I see it. Here's what I believe. I'll be honest, I find that quite liberating and helpful because some of the things that we believe no longer feel at all intuitive for the people uh, we, we rub shoulders with. It's maybe a, a useful thing to think that through and, and to take that journey of the heart and mind. Jesus' followers, they knew that their message would sound crazy to a listening world. If you have the Corinthians passage open, now would be the time to turn to it. Uh, page 1144. Paul knew that his message was crazy, that it didn't fit with conventional wisdom. He had planted a church in Corinth, and 1 Corinthians is a letter that he wrote some years later from a distance to deal with, um, to deal with what he was hearing that was coming from the church in Corinth. In particular, he had heard that there was a growing dissatisfaction with him with Paul and with his message. As you read 1 Corinthians, you realize, well, these guys might have been Paul's guys back then, but they've gone off him. They've started to be interested in other people. Maybe they think he's a dull speaker. Maybe they're not that impressed by him. I mean, how impressive is he really? He's a guy who makes tents and talks to people round the edges of his tent-making ministry. A proper... A proper, proper academic, a proper intellectual would be in the university uh, and would be teaching from that kind of a platform. The church has gone off Paul and they've become more enamored with other teachers, um, maybe other sophisticated ideas that are doing the rounds in the city of Corinth. Paul sums up the, the, move, uh, the movement that the people have made. Verse 17, that they're looking to words of human wisdom. They're people who started to follow Jesus Christ, 
but we find that their worldview hasn't changed. They still expect to, to find their worldview not in Christ or in the cross, but in the culture. So what does Paul do? Does he try to persuade them how reasonable and rational Christian faith and the cross of Jesus Christ is? Verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I think we play a trick on ourselves sometimes that we imagine that the cross only seems foolish in the modern world. That people back then somehow thought that all makes sense. The cross was always foolish. Paul's writing a few years after Jesus' crucifixion, and he talks about the foolishness of the cross. Remember how it happened. Jesus Christ allowed himself to be nailed to a a rough beam cross. He was crucified among... We think of two others because two others are mentioned in the story. The likelihood is that Jesus is crucified with a big crowd of guys. Just whatever bunch of criminals, whatever bunch of revolutionaries, whatever general riffraff the the Roman authorities chose should die in Jerusalem that day. The onlookers that day, again, the movies have damaged all of this for us. The onlookers that day didn't see anything out of the ordinary. There's no glow There's no soft music background. There's no doves descending from heaven. There's no halos. There's just the sound and the smell of a long, excruciating death. Crucifixion was reserved for the defeated, for people who were failures, for losers. And everybody knew that. It was the ultimate symbol of shame and defeat in the Roman Empire. Do you see now how strange it is that Paul tackles this? The Corinthians are are looking after, they're looking out for an intellectual, uh, a reasonable and impressive message. And Paul says, no, our message is the foolishness of the cross. Paul says that it's this place of, of defeat of devastation where the wisdom of God is on display. This is the place where God's wisdom is best seen. To these sophisticated Corinthians, they're so besotted with the wisdom of their own culture, Paul says to them, I know this is going to sound crazy, but that body, raised up, naked, nailed to that cross. That's the wisdom of God. You're looking for wisdom? Paul says God starts with foolishness. You're striving for upward mobility in your society? Well, God leads to downward social mobility. You think the truth's found in in clever arguments, persuasive ideas, 
God's truth is found in a topic that nobody's going to raise in a conversation at a dinner party anytime soon. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In a book which we're using as a, a bit of a framework and an outline for this series, Graham Tomlin says, if ever there was an argument for atheism, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is it. Jesus of Nazareth was supposedly the son of God. He was the, the guy who lived a perfect life. If anyone ever deserved Jesus or God's help, Jesus Christ was it. And what happens in that hour of need when he needs help from on high? Nothing. God, if there is such a thing, such a person, does nothing. And while Jesus suffers and dies, there's only a deafening silence. Folks, the cross of Jesus Christ seems like the ultimate argument for atheism. And yet, says Paul, this picture of foolishness is the place where God's wisdom is revealed. In the late 60s, there was a book published under the rather intriguing title, The God I Want. A guy called James Mitchell collected a series of responses to that question. So you have various public figures describing the kind of God they want, the kind of God they, they could cope with or conceive. Not one of them wanted a crucified God. Folks, this idea, the God I want, hasn't gone away in the years since the 60s. We would love it, each one of us, I'm going to say. I know I would. We'd love to have the God of our choosing to have the God that we feel comfortable with. I've heard people use that phrase. They talk about not wanting to have a cross visible in their church because they don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. They talk about not wanting to preach about the cross of Jesus Christ because that message makes people feel uncomfortable. We're, we're always drawn to this idea of the God I want John Stott, in, in one of his books, talks about the reason why he doesn't run from the cross of Jesus Christ, but why the foolishness of the cross is God's greatest glory for him. He says this, I could never myself believe in God if it weren't for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, his eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look in his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while I had to turn away, and in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, 
back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Folks, as we begin our Crosstalk series this morning, we look at the cross of Jesus Christ and we see that we need to give up our ideas of who God is. We need to stop thinking about the God I want. And we need to look instead to see the God who is. One of our basic starting points in a Christian understanding of God is that God is bigger than we are. Why would we ever think that we can understand God? If there's a crazy idea doing the rounds, that's the crazy idea, that we can understand God. If we ever did attempt to understand God on our own terms, we'd end up with a very, very small God, as small as our minds are, a small God that we can understand, not a God who understands and who loves us. The only way we can begin to understand God is if he shows himself to us. If he pulls back the veil that so often seems to be between us and him. And if when he does that, we mustn't be surprised if he turns out to be different than we might have expected. In this series, we're going to talk about looking through the cross to see the world through different eyes. But our starting point today isn't to look at the world at all. It's to look at the God who made the world. Usually what we try to do is we try to fit God into our lives. We're like the Sanhedrin. We say we know how life works. Now Jesus Christ fit into that. We're like the Corinthian church. We know what wisdom is. Paul, you don't stack up so we forget about you. We think we know stuff, and we try to get God to accommodate Jesus to what we already know. The cross shows us something different. It shows us that we don't know nothing, as the bad grammar puts it. The cross invites us to throw away our ideas and to start filling our hearts and minds again with God's. That's my prayer in this series. Uh, For me, as I spend time uh, reading, studying, and preparing, that I'll be drawn deeper into a God-shaped, cross-shaped life. Read a lovely wee thing this week. Uh, the writer was from an Anglican background, and he talked about churches. In the Anglican tradition, as you know, many churches are cross-shaped. They'll have a long body and uh, two... Oh, I've forgotten my church architecture. Naves, are they? Naves that stick out the side. Gives you a cross-shaped thing. 
This writer made a point. He said, our church architecture is great, cross-shaped churches, but much less common is a cross-shaped community in that building. My prayer is for me to grow as a cross-shaped person, for us to grow as a cross-shaped community here. Let's gather here, the lot of us, and see if our lives couldn't be shaped more by the cross of Jesus Christ. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Father God, we identify today with the Sanhedrin, those people who were confronted with Jesus and couldn't quite get him. Lord, where we know our hearts are in Corinth, we're, we're very impressed by lots of ideas, by lots of wisdom in our culture. The worldview of our neighbors is not so very unlike ours. So, Lord, we come to you this morning and we say, come and renew our minds. Renew us by the transforming of our minds. Give us cross-shaped hearts, imaginations, and lives. Lord, we pray that you would meet with us this summer. Help us with this. Help us today, maybe to begin in a very humble place to say, any wisdom that I have is foolishness. If it's not the wisdom of the cross of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, humble us, but begin to build us up. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just now we're going to sing, and we'll maybe keep our seats as we sing this time and allow the stewards to lift this morning's offering. Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. Uh, Let's worship in our giving and our singing.